Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel. And Lucas, we're getting more of the same, but at the same time, I would consider this a breather episode. Or if you want to call it like a filler arc type thing, uh, that may not be the right thing. You know, breather episode, maybe to some extent. Um, one team we're very familiar with at this point. The other is one that we've seen pop up a couple of times here and there, but you know, not a super regular contributor in terms of teams that we talk about on the regular. Let's start with the familiar team, the New York Yankees. The third straight year they have won the American League pennant. This year was defined partially by the arrivals of two young players, right fielder Tommy Henrik and second baseman Joe Gordon, who was filling in for the departed Tony Lazeri and doing so very well. He had 25 home runs and 97 RBIs, also having a big impact. Bill Dickey hitting 313 with 27 home runs. Joe DiMaggio still being Joe DiMaggio hitting 324, 140 runs batted in, 32 home runs in his third season. And then you have Lou Gehrig hitting 295 with 29 home runs and 114 RBIs, which for most players would be a fantastic season, but for him it was a step down. At the time, they thought that, oh, Gehrig's just getting old, he's 35 years old, but it is now believed that this was an early sign that he was suffering from ALS. Well, and especially given, and we'll go into this next episode spoiler alert at age 35 i mean it's a fairly natural progression because you go from a guy who has been consistently hitting well above 300 for basically a decade at this point you look through his batting averages and the only year in his career other than this to this point where he's hit below 300 was 1925 and that was his first full year in the big leagues so other than that he's just been phenomenal hitter and I mean it's crazy to see a guy hitting 295 and call that a down year but the reality of it is that for Lou Gehrig hitting 295 was a down year. Henrik, by the way, was the fifth Yankee to hit over 20 home runs. He hits 22. The other guys we just mentioned, Dickey, Garrett Gordon, and DiMaggio, all hits 20 home runs. And it was all part of an American League leading offense, 966 runs. So you have a lot of offense, and you have the best pitching staff in the American League to complement that. A 3.91 ERA, the only AL team under four. You have a 21-7 record from Red Ruffing, an 18-12 record from Lefty Gomez. They were second and third in the AL and ERA, respectively, at 3.32 and 3.35. You also have a nice third and fourth starter in Spud Chandler and Monty Pearson, respectively, combining for a 30-12 and 12 record. So, great hitting, great pitching. It's no surprise that they won this pennant by 9.5 games over the Red Sox. Yeah, uh, 567 strikeouts as a team, a uh, whip of about 1.45. Back to the offense, the team hit 174 home runs, which is the sort of number that you would expect to see more in the modern major leagues. You mentioned uh, five guys hitting over 20 home runs during the regular season, and then you add in Red Rolfe and George Selkirk both hitting double-digit home runs, and Frankie Crissetti finishing the year with nine 
to go with 27 stolen bases, a 274 average for this Yankees team. The one maybe knock that you could consider on this team is that they only won 99 games. Only won 99 games. That is crazy to think that 99 wins is considered a down year for a team. But, uh, hey, when you have a dominant team like these New York Yankees, you kind of have to expect that uh, this is going to draw these types of comparisons. Indeed, but you mentioned uh, Tony Lazari earlier having departed, and, oh, hey, he's on the Yankees' opponents this season. That's right, the Chicago Cubs. By the way, one more thing about the Yankees. Lou Gehrig passed 2,000 consecutive games this year, so amazing they still able to do that, considering what we know now about him. But moving over to the National League, the Chicago Cubs. And it was kind of a tumultuous year for the Cubs. They won only 89 games, but they won the pennant for the second time in seven years after changing managers in the middle of the season. On July 20th, Charlie Grimm was fired, and Gabby Hartsnitz, the catcher who had been around for a while, was named the manager. And the Cubs were in a very tight pennant race this year. They had the Pirates, the Giants, and the Reds all chasing them. And the season more or less came down to a game on September 28th at Wrigley Field. Now, at the time that my one source was written, this was described as perhaps the most dramatic moment in Cubs history. Of course, we know now that that has been surpassed by much more recent events. But what happened was with two games left in the season, the game was tied in the bottom of the ninth at 5-2-5 and the sun was going down, the umpires were ready to call the game because of darkness after the inning ended. So what happened was the Pirates and the first two Cubs quietly made out. Then Hartsnet was at the plate, and special bonus for you, Lucas, I happened to have a transcript of the radio call given by Charles Carroll, a.k.a. Pat Flanagan of WBBM, who was one of the early pioneers of baseball broadcasting, especially in Chicago. So here is what happened. You had your chance at play-by-play a few episodes back, Lucas. Now it's my turn for the Cubs, no less. So here it is. Have at it. This is it. The Cubs have to score. Then moments later, a long drive to deep left center. Lloyd Wainer going back. Gone! Gone! Cubs win! On October 1st, they clinched the pennant. And that is how the Cubs go on to face the Yankees in the World Series. And they were anchored by a couple of solid pitchers and Bill Lee, who leads the league with a 22-9 record. Charlie Root had a 2.85 ERA. And this home run, by the way, was called the Homer in the Gloman. While it didn't officially clinch the pennant for the Cubs, it more or less did much like, uh, and I'm just using a 2005 White Sox example here, when Joe Creedy hit a home run against Cleveland late in the season when the two teams were battling for the division, which I missed because my dad changed the TV channel because we just got on digital cable. He was checking out movies, but that's a topic for not this podcast. But uh, these are the Cubs in 1938 going to the World Series. The Homer in the Gloman, one of the more famous uh, home runs in baseball history, you know, much less Cubs history. You know, you look at this Cubs team, a uh, team ERA of 337. You had, during the regular season, uh, Dizzy Dean actually making an appearance on the 
Cubs here in 1937. More of a reliever role, although he he started 10 games, pitched in relief for a few as well. Uh, This was his first season as a member of the Cubs. He went 7-1, posted a 181 ERA in that limited action through about 75 innings. You had a kind of an ugly 10 and 19 record from Larry French in the uh, regular season. Posted a 380 ERA, pitched a fair number of games in relief, but I mean on on the whole some decent numbers there. Offensively not as much pop, only 65 home runs as a team. The Cubs only had two guys with double digit home runs on the campaign. Ripper Collins led the team with 13 and the aforementioned Gabby Hartnett hit 10 in 88 games for the Cubs. The Cubs, by the way, went 20-3 and down the stretch. That also played a key role in them clinching the pennant. And Game 1 of the World Series is at Wrigley Field. You know, we're so used to the Cubs not starting the World Series at Wrigley Field. Uh, this is kind of a shocker. And, you know, even with the Cubs being a much more recent World Series, I'd say this is kind of a surprise, don't you think? It is a little bit, and so this is actually, Wrigley Field had just been reconstructed out in the bleachers going into the 1937 season. They'd significantly shorted the uh, power alley in left center. I don't know if that got it to the uh, roughly 368 that it is now. I'm not super familiar with the history of how it was constructed, but yeah, I mean, it's you're not used to seeing Wrigley Field as a venue for the World Series, but here we are. So game one features appropriately the two respective league leaders in wins, roughing against Lee, and Bill Dickey has four hits for the Yankees, and the Yankees win game one by a score of 3-1, to one. roughing goes the distance. Yeah, four for four day for uh, Bill Dickey, he scored one of the three Yankee runs, just kind of looking through it in that top of the second, Dickey ended up scoring the second run in the game. It uh, began the top of the second with Joe DiMaggio grounding out a Lou Gehrig walk. Bill Dickey singled, moving Gehrig to third. Uh, Dickey ended up advancing to second on the throw, trying to get Gehrig out at third. And then with George Selkirk up, he bounced a ball to second base. And the Cubs' Billy Herman could not handle it. Run scores. Drink. Joe Gordon would single Dickey home the next play, so the Yankees had a 2-0 lead. Really, that was all they were going to need. The Yankees got some insurance in the sixth on a Bill Dickey RBI single, and that is your 3-1 final. Game 2 features probably two of the most colorful pitchers in baseball at that time going to the mound, Lefty Gomez against Dizzy Dean. And Game 2 features... A little bit more of the same. The Yankees get to Dean late in the game. Frankie Crisetti and Joe DiMaggio hit home runs. They win this one by a score of 6-3. to three. Not a whole lot else to talk about, except for the fact that this was the only time that the Yankees went to the bullpen. Gomez was replaced by their closer at the time. And I used the word closer very loosely because closers weren't really defined yet at that point. Johnny Murphy replaced Gomez after the seventh inning, ends up getting the save, and of note, McCarthy never once went to the mound in this series to make a pitching change. So we have the only pitching change for the Yankees in this series, and it comes between innings. The Yankees taking the lead for good in the top of the eighth, so the Cubs were ahead for a decent chunk of this game. They were up 3-2 to two after seven. 
Frankie Crissetti hits what ends up being the game-winning home run with two outs in the top of the eighth. And then they got some insurance in the top of the ninth. Joe DiMaggio hitting a home run to left after a leadoff single by Tommy Henrich. And the Cubs unable to do anything off of Johnny Murphy in either the eighth or the ninth. And so the Yankees end up taking two at Wrigley Field. And interestingly enough, this is the final time that the Yankees would play a game at Wrigley Field for 65 years. Game three is kind of interesting. The Cubs send Clay Bryant, not Chris Bryant, Clay Bryant, to the mound. He led the NL in strikeouts that year, but he only had 135 strikeouts. But he was very effective to begin this. He held the Yankees to no hits through four and two-thirds innings. But that all changed because Joe Gordon hits a home run, and then the next inning he hits a two-run single. The Yankees win this game by a score of 5-2. to two. Red Rolf ends up giving the Yankees the lead for good in the bottom of the fifth after that two-out solo shot by Joe Gordon. Monty Pearson singles to center. Frankie Crissetti walks, and then Rolf ends up driving home what turns out to be the go-ahead run. Cubs get a little bit back. Uh, Joe Marty with a home run in the top of the eighth, but Yankees get that right back. Bill Dickey leads off the bottom of the eighth with a home run, and just, it's all Yankees here through three games. Game four, the game one pitchers are back on the mound, Lee and Ruffing, and the Yankees don't waste any time. They score three and hits by Gordon Ruffing and Crissetti, then they score four more insurance runs in the eighth inning. Ruffing goes the distance. The Yankees win game four, eight to three, and they are World Series champions yet again. Of note in this game, Lou Gehrig has his final World Series hit. He singles and scores his last World Series at bat. Gehrig, who, by the way, had his 13th straight season of 100 RBIs or more, he had four hits, all in consequential singles, uh, scored four runs, and no RBIs in his final World Series. But the big story was the pitching. You have Red Ruffing going the distance twice in this series. And, of course, neither one is bigger than that World Series clincher. The final score of this game four was eight to three, but I don't know that that really tells the story of how close this game was. Yes, the Yankees get that three-run bottom of the second, a red roughing RBI single, and then a two-run triple by Frankie Crissetti to break it open. Cubs get one back in the top of the fourth. Yankees get that run back bottom of the sixth, the Tommy Henrik home run. The Cubs manage to make it a one-run game in the top of the eighth. Ken O'Day with a two-out, two-run home run makes it four to three, and then in the bottom of the eighth with... Vance Page on the mound to start. He gets an initial fly ball out, then gives up back-to-back singles to Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig. Fair enough. Larry French comes in, faces one batter. Bill Dickey gets him to pop out. They replace him immediately. Tex Carlton comes in, and then the wheels just completely fall off. You have a wild pitch scoring a run. Uh, Myrel Hogue ends up doubling home another Additional wild pitch, a stolen base. Dizzy Dean has to come in to try to stop the bleeding. He gives up a two-run double, and it just, everything falls apart in the bottom of the eighth. And the Cubs more or less go down with a whimper in the top of the ninth. You get a a Billy Jurgis leadoff single, but Cubs unable to really do anything about that. 
The Cubs get outscored in this series by a combined score of 22-9. to Gordon is the hitting star for the Yankees with a 400 batting average and a 733 slugging percentage. Interestingly enough, it was Stan Hack of the Cubs leading all players in batting average for this series, hitting 471 and getting eight hits. He's the first member of the losing team to do that, but obviously not nearly enough to prevent the Cubs from getting swept. Hack hit 471. Phil Cavaretta hit 462, went 6 for 13 in the four game losing effort. Uh, the Cubs with seven extra base hits on the series, a couple home runs, one by Joe Marty, one by Ken O'Day. Uh, had one triple, four doubles, but only hit 243 as a team. It's just they couldn't string things together the way the Yankees were able to do. You go through, you look at kind of the Yankees' numbers hitting wise. Bill Dickey and Joe Gordon and Myrel Hogue all hitting 400 for the series. You have uh, six RBIs for Joe Gordon, same number for Frankie Crisetti. They each had one home run in the series. I don't know if you want to go World Series MVP honors with one of those. I'd probably lean like you were talking about the fact that Red Ruffin threw two complete games in the World Series, finished 2-0 and with a... 1.5 ERA, allowed 17 hits over those 18 innings, walked only two, struck out 11. I'd probably go roughing as your uh, series MVP. And also for the fact that he was part of a Yankee staff that outpitched the Cubs staff 1.75 to 5.03 on the ERA scale. So yes, I would have to agree that roughing in my book would have been World Series MVP. And that Joe McCarthy becomes the first manager to win three consecutive World Series. And considering the Yankees have already had an impressive manager in Miller Huggins 10 years prior, uh, the fact that McCarthy has been able to one-up him, I guess you could say, it just goes to show you that there doesn't seem to be a weakness on this Yankees team. And the book that I have here uh, says that fans of other teams had to wonder if the Yankees kept coming up with rookies like this, you know, rookies being uh, Joe Gordon with how well he hits in this series, would their dynasty ever end? So what you're telling me is that the Yankees were the Cardinals before the Cardinals were the Cardinals? Well, I don't know what you mean by that exactly because the Cardinals have not had nearly the history that the Yankees have. But if you're talking about the Cardinals and... I'm referring more to the whole, you know, because seemingly, you know, they always seem to have these young guys that come up and are immediately able to contribute type of situation and I mean so I'm probably being unfair to the Yankees with all of this homegrown talent of you know you have a Lou Gehrig come up to be complimentary piece to Babe Ruth and then have him continue to be a complimentary piece when Joe freaking DiMaggio comes up and now all these other guys coming up and they've won three straight titles together is there an end in sight we don't know well there could be an end in sight for one particular Yankee, and I should say there will be an insight for that particular Yankee, and we'll learn more about that in our next episode, 1939. The Yankees are back again, and they will face an opponent that hasn't been to the World Series in a while. In fact, the last time we saw them, they were aided by their opponent. So, given that, will the Yankees dynasty continue, or will an upstart team upsets those plans for a fourth straight title. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. 
Okay, so for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1938 episode. Then there were two History of the World series. We'll see you next time for our 1939 episode. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe too. We'll see you next time. <laughs>